and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, supported this month by Spillers. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. I hope everyone's doing well, enjoying the summer and excited for the sport that we've got coming up over the next couple of months. We've got the Royal International, all of the European Championships across the different disciplines, of course, Burley and just so much more. Before we get to all that, we're going to take a moment on this podcast to look at the recent Hickster Derby. We'll be hearing from the winner, David Simpson, about how he secured that big victory. Piotr was definitely, of all the trips I've had around the Derby, was by far the simplest ever to ride because he's, he's so beautiful to ride and he's such good balance. You can put him exactly where you want to put him, so it makes your life so much easier. We'll then hear from Spiller's senior nutritionist Bella Fricker and six-time Olympic medalist Andrew Hoy, who will bring us some insight on how to ensure horses stay hydrated and how to monitor that. Water and hydration is one of the key factors with a horse arriving at its destination well. I will weigh the horses before departure and upon arrival and dehydration is the is the biggest weight loss. More from Andrew and Bella later. For now, gather up your reins and let's get started. Hi, I'm Jennifer Donald, show jumping editor at Horse and Hound. And in the wake of this year's epic Al Hickstead Derby, which I think everyone is still talking about, I am delighted to be joined by the winning rider, David Simpson. David, hello, welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. It's great to be on. Brilliant. Well, let's start with that amazing day at Hickstead. Has it all sunk in yet? Are you sort of still pinching yourself that you've actually won this iconic class? Yeah, no, it's it's incredible. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it'll ever sink in. You know, it's one of those <laughs> classes you watch from when you're very, very young and you always dream of even riding the class is a yeah. huge dream. But to go and win it, yeah, it's a bit surreal, I must say. And it's, you know, unfortunately, this life never slows down. So it's... <laughs> Monday morning I was warming young horses and sorting out my fields and doing stuff so you, you back to reality exactly there's no there's no big celebration for days on end about it but yeah no it's, it's brilliant and like to have have my name on a on the board in the Beethoven bar with you know up against some of the some of the greatest writers in history like Michael and John William Funnel Paul Dara Eddie Mackin you know it, it's cool to have your name up there very special, isn't it? And and yep. sort of take me through it then. Had you been aiming the brilliant sort of Piotr for a while or has, was this sort of a last minute decision to enter him in the class? Yeah, well, I, I was always going to bring him to the show and uh, he loves it there. He won the seven-year-olds there last year with Louise. And, uh, you know, to have a facility like Hickstead, we're only 20 minutes away to produce eight-year-olds, you know, give them that idea of being on the big stage. So he was always going to go to the show. I was I was I was also ninety five percent sure I was going to jump in the Derby trials. So I we we've a lovely little Derby course in our grass ring at home. So I trained him a bit, and he just took to it like a duck to water. Like first time on the ditches, first time down the bank, first time at the dike. Every time he just nailed it first time. Wow! So I knew him from riding him and producing him that he was more capable of doing it. Just obviously with him being an eight year old, I was a little bit apprehensive. More so how, you know, in today's modern sport, we, we always think long term about, you know, selling the horses and what their future like looks like. And I, I was a little bit hesitant that, you know, that somebody might think putting an eight-year-old in the derby, oh, he's just a, 
a big brave lump is not the quality <laughs> actually is yeah. so that was probably the one thing that was holding me back but right. knowing him and knowing him personally I, I kind of thought you know he'll cope with this absolutely fine he'll actually probably enjoy it which he did oh bless him yes and you had a couple of offenses down in the derby trial did that worry you at all did that change your way of thinking or was, did you sort of take that in your stride uh well i took it in my stride because it was completely my fault oh, was <laughs> yeah, <it? laughs> he was um I, I i rode him terribly in the derby tri- we were having the perfect round and i i just jumped the triple bar and he jumped it so well i just thought normally i always do seven to the gate and I just thought, oh, he's jumping out of his skin. I'll just, rather than interfering with the rhythm, I'll let him just cruise down the hill to this gate. Oh, my And goodness. he just touched the top of it. And I was like, you idiot, Dave. Like, all <laughs> I had to do was sit up and do seven. And then, to be honest, because you have the dike immediately after, you want to keep up the rhythm. And then it just, it was all, and that's why he had the plank behind. And, and to be fair to him, even though I rode him so terribly on Friday, he tried his hardest still to jump there. <laughs> He's such a dude. And then the sort of coming into the Derby itself then, are you do you sleep well the night before? Are you tossing and turning, dreaming about coming down the Derby bank and things like that? Uh, or to to be relaxed? honest, the, the Derby show is my favourite show all year because I'm I, I love old fashioned show jumping and I love, you know, big ball jumps and stuff like that. So I, I, I sleep great because I, I just I it's normally in the modern sport everything's so light, time allowed are so tight, you know, you're always pushing whereas the derby, the derby trial, those classes are, you know, it goes back to just big jumps and setting a good rhythm and just cruising around forward. So I actually, I, I really enjoy the derby, the derby week. Oh, brilliant. Um, and then take me through that sort of first round. I mean, he looked like he was giving you a great feeling right from the start, was he? Listen, he's he's, st- he's eight, so you you are riding, not thinking you're going to jump a, no, obviously you're, you're pretty sure you're going to jump a clear, you wouldn't go into the ring otherwise, yeah. but... I more just wanted to put him in a really good rhythm from fence one and just sort of stay in it, give him support where he needed it. But to be honest, like, yeah, one, two, he jumped amazing. I put a little bit of leg on at number three and I get, got a little bit of a quick jump. So I was like, okay, oh, yeah. this is just a, he's just behaving like a normal Grand Prix. And and then from then on, I just stayed in one rhythm and he, he just kept jumping what was in front of him. Oh my goodness, it looked fantastic to ride. Were you able to sort of enjoy it or were you more sort of in the zone focusing on what was ahead of you? Yeah, I, I pretty much you just, like the derby, like I said, I moved to Shane's in 2007, so I've been watching the class for 16 years, like intimately watching it and study. So I, I, you sort of just are replaying all, you know, just where you want to be in the round, what part of, the, you know, what your gear is where you want to be for each obstacle, how your horse is feeling. To, to be honest, Piotr's, definitely of all the trips I've had around the Derby, was by far the simplest ever to ride because he's, he's so beautiful to ride and he's such good balance. You can put him exactly where you want to put him, so it makes your life so much easier. Oh, he's the dream, isn't he? And yeah. I, I think we all, our hearts all stopped at the top of the bank. Did you, were you, did you sort of feel that moment of hesitation, or were you more focused on sort of getting him down? That I, bank? I, I was more focused. I didn't want him rushing there, you know. Yeah. And it, listen, we trained the bank, and he trained it really good. But obviously, my bank at home is probably about half the size and a, a lot more gradual. You know, it's just more to give them confidence and teach them where to jump off from. Yeah. So I just, he, he he was really keen and really enjoying himself at that point. He really jumped the vertical on top. And I just, I just wanted to steady him and make him take a breath. And I felt him just like pop on the spot. And then I thought, okay, just 
get his front legs over and just ease him down here. And the minute I got halfway down and he jumped off, I was like, oh, perfect. Oh, We're yes. away here. <laughs> Brilliant. And f- crossing the line that first time, I mean, it's such an achievement to get a clear round at Hickstead at all, let alone go through to a jump off. So you, were you thrilled just to get that first clear in the bag? Yeah, 100%. Like, I, it's my first ever clear in the Hickstead Derby. I, I just thought to myself, probably looked a bit like a lunatic but I just was like I just wanted to really I didn't even think about the jump off at that point I just thought enjoy this you've just jumped clear in the Hickstead Derby and to be honest then I was lucky after that I Trevor and Shane there and Graham Gillespie just I Graham was in the warm-up and Trevor and Shane were watching the ring and just chatting to them and just resetting myself and I, I had to forget that I just jumped clear in the Hickstead Derby and just focus on <laughs> like a jump off of any Grand Prix and try and get it won. That's it. Were you watching Williams rounds? What advice did um, did they all give you going in? To be honest, I'd spoke to because Trevor's obviously Trevor and Shane have both been in jump offs. Uh, Trevor, I think Trevor's round was eighty five. He won it in, and Shane was really quick with Golden Hawk when, but he didn't win. And we were just more talking about what gear to go in, and you know, there's it's it's so much different to any other jump off because it's not hell for leather. It's just about there's so many jumps like there's one two three four five a combination open water so there's like 12 12 obstacles in the jump off so which is which is actually a long course you know it's it's nearly when you when you think i won it in 91 seconds it's a it's a time allowed of a long grand prix you know exactly yeah absolutely so it's it's just you know we just sort of said about what gear i wanted to be in what i needed to do and mm-hmm. yeah just that was it that was it oh my goodness and what you were clear for so long what went through your head when the derby rail fell was it uh, did you is it hard not to panic in that situation are you good at keeping your cool and just yeah well, to be honest to be honest i knew once i got the dike jump and i knew i was slightly ahead of will and time i when i jumped the i wanted to make sure i got the open water jump because it, 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 it he was the one for the jump off Piotr was very tired and i just I, I I tried to conserve all his energy to jump the Devil's Dyke for a second time. And once I got that jump, I wanted to make sure I had good rhythm at the water. Yeah. And once I had that done, I seen a really floaty stride to the to the uh, Derby rails. And I sort of, in my head, thought back to Friday when I'd done that at the gate and then nicked another one because of it. And I thought, I'm better off to put him once on his hocks and really lift his balance and risk having the derby rails because then I know I'll I'll get home okay. Yes. So that ah. was that was my plan, and I, it was it was annoying to have one in the jump off, but at the same time, I sort of used the derby rails to make sure I got home on just the four because I and right. in my internal clock, I was fairly sure I was. I didn't think it was as tight as it was. I thought I'd give myself oh, like two seconds. <laughs> yeah. But the oh, fact no. that only give myself one the bit was yeah was what yeah it, at the end of the, when I went. I sort of said to Shane that was annoying, but he said, listen, you've just won the Hickstead Derby. Forget about it. (laughs) Don't worry about the details. It's fine. Exactly. (laughs) Um, And I have to say that was one of the best celebrations I have ever seen that uh, your hat went flying. I guess every emotion just came out, did it, at that moment? It was was like being a a child again. And I I, I remember like the first time at home watching the Hickstead Derby. It's it's a weird memory. You know, you have these weird memories. And I remember being sat on the couch with my mum and dad watching the Hickstead Derby on BBC thinking this is just incredible and I, just in my head just the thought that I, not only had I jumped the class that I'd won the class I mean, yes. it was just 
I, I didn't really know how to react if I'm being quite honest. Oh. <laughs> and as you said, to, to lift that famous boomerang trophy win in the wake of all those amazing legends that have won it as well. I mean, that is so special. It's uh, yeah, a proper pinchy moment, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's 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 a moment that I, you know, I'll cherish forever. And this is what we do for a living. And you know, it's it's on to the next show. And you know, yeah. my goal now is to win it again. You know, it's yes. not <laughs> it's not you don't rest on your laurels. You you push on and you improve and you know, I, I I count myself very lucky to have got myself into a position to be riding a horse like Piotr to be where I feel very confident in my riding and be able to go and deliver results like that, you know. That's fantastic. And uh, there was a, such a lovely picture of you walking back. Was it to the stables where you still had the garland round Piotr's neck? And uh, yeah. did you manage to find a sort of quiet moment or was it such a blur of, you know, there must have been media interviews, everything going on? And the, Yeah, everything. no, it, to, be, to be honest, it didn't It didn't really stop. And I, I, I Connor and Charlie, my two older sons who are 10 and 7 at the show with me. And, oh. you know, like I, I got maybe a half an hour after everything was done to chat to Shane chat to Trevor but then it they had school the next day so it was oh, yeah. get them back home get them back get them in bed oh, my you know goodness. and then yeah, just on to another day you know yeah absolutely um and you've obviously jumped around the Hickstead Derby lots of times now have you what have you sort of learned over the years have you changed the way you've ridden it from you know can you remember the first time you rode around and compare it to yeah. now yeah yeah for sure I can remember probably 95 percent of the times I've been around it but yeah I I, I, I it's a really you know the the class doesn't change, but the the horse you're riding completely changes. You know, and it's it's really about trying to figure out what suits each horse best. You know, and what what approaches to the dike critically, and what each horse dwells on, and what each horse's strengths are and their weaknesses, and that's really how you vary the ride. The big thing, I think, where it's such a long way, and having them fit enough, but also as a rider that you maintain the same ry- rhythm that your horse is breathing and your horse feels as good coming to the last as he did cantering to the first. Um, and on that subject, I mean, we must just nod to uh, William Funnel, what he achieved and came so close to making history. He gave you a good uh, good battle right to the end there, didn't he? I, I, yeah, for sure. And I would think, I wouldn't expect any less from Will, you know, and <laughs> to, to be delivering results like that like to jump two horses clear in the Hickstead Derby in the same year is it's unheard of it it's never been done before and I, I think it'll be a long time before we see it again and they're, they're actually they're actually quite different horses the two even though they're both big and slow and chestnut one you know I've ridden Diamo and watching Dublin I I think uh yeah it's an incredible feat not to just do it with two horses but to do it with two horses that are so different Definitely. No, it's good. It was a great, great story and a great result. So it was great for everybody. But uh, obviously the star of it all was the brilliant Piotr, eight-year-old. It's just absolutely unheard of, as you say. It's for so long it's been the sort of class for veterans. But um, yeah. he, he's he got a great sort of backstory. Tell us about the time you saw him when he was a two-year-old. Is that right? There was um, You spotted him. Yeah, no. So uh, Carl Cox is a, uh, he's a big stable in Belgium. And I bought a lot of great horses off Carl like Kiyoki who jumped double clear in the Nations Cup in uh, in Abu Dhabi uh, Channing Tatum who actually I, I sold to Katrina Offal and is now with Jess Mendoza uh, they're, they're, the list goes I'd say we've had 50 plus horses off Carl through the years so myself and Louise uh, we, we you know when we need to stock up because obviously our business is 
basic, you know, at, at the grassroots is trading in horses, you know, buying them, producing them, selling them. So anytime we'd be a little bit short and we need to go and buy a few carols would be our first port of call in, in Europe. And uh, so we were over and we were, we were sort of thinking as well as buy, normally we'd buy them in the five, six year old age group. We were like, oh, maybe we buy a couple of younger ones as well. So we were loose jumping two and three year olds. And Carl's place now is beautiful. It's really fancy. But back then, his indoor was just a big tent. Oh, was and there was a, <laughs> it was a, there was a little, where the door wouldn't fully close, there was like a, it was a really dark, dingy indoor, but there was a crack of light that was literally <gasps> just over a stride behind the loose jumping fence. And every time Piotr would pop the oxer and then pop it, pop the light, almost like it was another fence. Oh, and the, <laughs> From the time he'd done it two or three times, no matter what Carol had asked me, I was definitely going to buy him that day. And in, in fairness, Louise said, like, with that canter, you even if he isn't a top show jumper, he's going to be the most commercial horse in the world. And luckily, he's become both. Yes, isn't that fantastic? And did you know from the start, I mean, he was winning classes right from the early days, wasn't he? Was he always special? Did you always have a good feeling about him? Yeah, I really did. I remember breaking him at three and it lit. normally I take my time breaking them and, you know, like really making sure all the fundamentals are really right because that, you know, the, the horse's start is the most important part to their career. But with him, it just went so, like, honestly, after two days, you could have ridden him around the sand school. Just literally everything you do with him, he, he just takes it on board straight away and there's never an argument. He just does what you ask him to do and to be honest, that made a a big judgment on how we produced him because he was so clever. We didn't really want to bore him with show, you know, we showed him very little. And with Hickstead on your doorstep, you know, where you can jump on both sand and grass, literally until he was seven, I don't think he went anywhere else. He never needed oh, to, wow. you know. Yes. Oh, my gosh, that is interesting, isn't he? Um, and do you think he's more than a derby horse? I mean, are you sort of aiming for other Grand Prix and things like that with him? What's I, the aims? Oh, for sure. For sure, yeah. I, I genuinely think he's his championship ability. The horse, he's he's super careful. He's super scopy. He's beautiful to ride. He's very competitive. I I I think the big thing that me and Louise have spoke about about the horse is to slow slow down the production because he's ready now to go. He's already jumped a five star Grand Prix this year, and he's ready to ready to go and do it straight away again like Tuesday when I rode him after the, he had a day off on Monday went in the paddock Tuesday he, he was ready to go to another show oh but my we goodness yeah, but he's he's eight years old so yeah it's really about holding yourself back and really trying to pick pick the right shows for him and really just uh, he, he is pretty much fully ready to go but you know, try and give a bit longer that he's still in the sport when he's 17, 18, you know. That's it, exactly. Yeah, it's so tempting when they're that good, I can imagine. Just uh, you yeah. want to get on with it and enjoy them. Exactly. But, oh, exactly. Oh, like, I, I would have been if Michael Blake rang me and said, listen, here, we need, we're need we short somebody, <laughs> we need you to go to Aachen next week. Yes. It wouldn't have been the right decision, <laughs> but he would have been quite happy to load up and go there and he would have just done the same, you know. Absolutely. Oh, he's such a dude. And um, he's obviously part of a great string you have at the moment. Can you tell us a bit about your setup at home? How many horses have you got? And you've obviously got your kids and uh, family there as well. Yeah, yeah. No, so we've we've always, we, we when we first started, we've been in Bridgehill Farm now since 2015. We, we were lucky enough to be able to scrape together to get it bought. And we have uh, 30 boxes on our facility with uh, on 40 acres. We have a sand arena, grass arena. We have everything we need, really, to produce our horses to the highest level. 
obviously we we had a lot more horses in prior to Brexit, but you know part of Brexit has made it a lot more expensive. So we've had to condense our stable down. Now we probably always have about fifteen in, and the way we used to do it before was really good, and we really enjoyed it. But because of the cost of traveling to Europe and everything like that, it just it wasn't a viable way to do it. So we've sort of condensed down to fewer horses and more targeting more targeting in their competing that we don't just keep going show to show to show that we pick shows and we in some ways it's better in other ways it's slightly more difficult yeah uh, hopefully it will resolve itself within the next five years because it's it's very hard to be competitive and keep your ranking up you know with not being able to be on the road as much and obviously for like louise is an incredible rider and yeah. since we've you know we've four boys now so it's very hard for her to be at as many we're very lucky with really good nanny that looks after the kids when we're away but you know she's a mother and she doesn't want to be on the road the same amount while they're young yeah. she wants to you know spend as much time as she can with them yes. so yeah but we're 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 lucky we've a great facility and we've great bunch of people around us and really lucky and most importantly we've a great bunch of horses fantastic yeah a lot of juggling involved i can imagine it's uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly from <laughs> timing flights to yes. do the school run before you go and get a flight oh it's 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 a complete juggling act in all aspects absolutely um and take me back then to how did it all start for you did you grow up around horses were you pony mad as a kid yeah i wouldn't say as a, a young young kid i was pony mad I, I loved my hunting i was really obsessed with hunting and mum and dad were amateur show jumpers and would hunt all winter and it was really by chance you know we i remember like going to shows with mum and dad not being that fuss but when we were out hunting one day there was a a show jumper peter smith who hunted with us and he needed somebody to ride the ponies i think it was about eight or nine years old so mum and dad said to me do you want to go there and ride his ponies for him and compete his ponies and that's really how i, I really took my first steps into show jumping so i done that sort of every weekend and some summer holidays any school holidays mum peter lived about 30 minutes from us so mum and dad had dropped me up and I'd stay with Peter and ride all those days and I I genuinely I really really loved it and but mum and dad were very insistent that I'd stay in school till I until I'd done my A-levels and at least got a place in university and then then it became an option you know so I I'd done my A-levels I had a place in Nottingham to do veterinary but we had an agreement that once I got my place that I could defer it for a year okay so I but my my initial thought was I want to go to America and try it over there but I was in Tarlands actually at the two star and I was chatting to Shane and his rider he just moved to England and his rider didn't like it so was moving back to Ireland Martin Duffy actually Alex and uh, Michael's brother so he, he wanted to go back to Ireland so Shane said listen I don't know of anything immediate in America but why don't you come to me to help me out for one or two months and then we, we'll, we'll try and find somewhere for you while you're with me in the states and then whenever there's something available you can move there so i thought great idea <laughs> yeah moved over <laughs> and to be honest from day one working with shane it really it felt right you know we were both the same mentality he gave me opportunities immediately it was hard work but the one thing i really valued in shane's was even if it was really really hard work he was working as hard as we are it's really a fundamental i've tried to carry on into my own businesses you know you you set the standard that others follow not that you just give commands you know
Yes, no, that's brilliant. I can't think of a better place to learn all the ropes than at uh, yeah, the question. No, exactly. Absolutely fantastic. Um, and stepping out on your own then, it's obviously quite a daunting time. Did you find it tough or was it, um, did you find a sort of natural progression that way? Uh, I, I, I found it, it was definitely tough financially. And, you know, you suddenly go from just riding to being a yard man. With, I remember me and Louise started with immediate we obviously where we were both doing quite well with a lot of horses straight away we so we had about 16 horses and one groom and me and louise and, and, oh and connor was <laughs> connor was one year old so we oh. like literally would load him we we didn't even have accommodation at the yard so wow seven o'clock in the morning we'd load connor up into the car we'd drive to the yard we'd set him up in the tack room we'd muck out right yeah like it was it was crazy busy but we enjoyed it you know and it was it it was tough but I think both of us were ready you know Louise had been at Shirley Lights for a long time and you know she she really enjoyed working for Cyril and when Cyril passed it was like an end of an era and she was sort of ready to do something on her own and I'd been at Shane's for seven years and it was just sort of a you know Lou then got pregnant with Connor so it was just sort of a natural progression you know and it felt it felt like the right time to do it maybe other people might think we're crazy why, yes. why when you're just about to have your first child full-time employment and go self-employed but it obviously worked somewhat something along the way has obviously worked so it's all yeah, yeah. It's no all it, it, listen, it was it, it was hard work but we just it's, it's like uh when you're working for yourself after being in a job for so long it was like uh it was the boost we both needed you know yeah, absolutely. Um, and then finally, then sort of looking ahead, you've got the Hexted Derby in the bag. You said you're already looking forward to next year's. Would you like to be chasing those record wins that William's chasing one day? Is that the sort of goals further ahead? Yeah, the road? yeah, for sure. Listen, I, every year I have a horse that I think is going to jump clear in the Hexted Derby. I'll be in it. I, but you know, show jumping's fifty-two weeks of the year. We're, you yeah. know, all I all I'm thinking about now is the next Grand Prix I can win or the next big class. Or you know, I'd love to let Piotr have a chance at the King George it's obviously uh, you know it's it's a pipe dream but we can see if I can get there but you know it, it, it all all I want to do is be riding good horses producing them well and aiming for as big a class you know it, with the world rankings everything and it you know you need to be fighting to get into shows and then once you're there delivering you know so it's, yeah. it's just I just want to be at the best shows and win as many classes as I can that's all you can ask for isn't it so, exactly um, yeah very exciting though well david it's been really super chatting to you um i think this year's hickstead derby is certainly one none of us are going to forget it was uh, absolutely epic um and thank you very much for joining us on the podcast been a pleasure thank you to david and to jen for that great interview now it's time to hear some advice from the sponsor of this episode, Spillers. So it's over to Bella Fricker, a Spillers senior nutritionist and top event rider, Andrew Hoy. Hi, welcome to today's episode. Lovely to have you here. Um, I'm Bella from Spillers and I'm joined today by Andrew Hoy. Hi, Andrew. Hello, Bella. Really good to be here. Great. So today we're going to be talking about keeping horses hydrated in the hotter months. So I guess I should just start by saying, on average, a 500 kilo horse will typically drink around 25 litres a day. But as we always say, every horse is an individual and this does vary hugely. For example, horses that are on hay only diets, they will drink considerably more than horses that are on grass diets. So it is just a guideline. 
So, Andrew, on a sort of day-to-day, how do you manage your horse's water? Have they got automatic waterers? Have they got troughs? Is it buckets in the stable? What do you do? Now, look, that's that's something that I've debated for a long time just with myself because with where I am at the moment, the horses are on um, automatic waterers. Yep. Uh, my preference is to have buckets. And I the, the reason why I say that is that I can then monitor how much the horses are actually drinking. So albeit that I'm in that situation at the moment um, and the way that my stables are set up, it would just create an enormous amount of work if they were to be on, on buckets. But if I was to design a stable, I would either have a um, a monitor on the on the water if they had self-waterers or I would have them drinking out of buckets so that I could monitor how much they would they were drinking on a daily basis yeah absolutely well I guess that's probably easier for you when you're traveling away to monitor the water intake because when they're away you can do the buckets right Yes, that that is correct, and it's it's really interesting. I I do a lot of long distance traveling with the horses, and the one thing that I've actually noticed is it can be, in a way, twelve hours or nine to twelve hours before the horses will start to to drink what when traveling. Um, what I have done is I've in the last two years, three years, I've totally changed. The way that I, I travel my horses now, I do not have my horses tied up. I have my horses traveling loose. I have them in a um, a stall area, like a, a partition area that is minimum 90 centimeters in, in width and up to a meter 10 in in width. And with that, I... I have them totally separated so that they cannot see the other horse alongside of them. I have um, buckets um, in the the truck or the trailer that I that I have, and then I have them so that they can they can drink at any stage. And I also have hay on the floor so that they can actually eat eat hay. Um, and one of the most important things with that is that um, especially with the traveling of the horses that they can get their head actually down so that they can get any mucus that's in their nose out. And because if we look at horses in the wild, they're, they're continual grazers and they have their heads down. And so that's what I try to um, simulate while they're, while they're traveling. And, and water and hydration is one of the key factors with um a horse arriving at its destination well if i have um difficulty in a horse actually um drinking or getting a horse to drink there's there's two things i w- will do i will slice up apples and put apples or whole apples into the water bucket so that they have to put their head into their nose into the water to actually get the apples and the other thing is to to feed a um, soup type mash so that it's it's very runny and watering and and I have a weigh bridge that I have with me a portable weigh bridge so I will weigh the horses before departure and upon arrival and that way dehydration is the is the biggest weight loss Yes, of course. Okay, I have so many questions from all of that. Thank you. First question, 
how much water do they typically drink when traveling? Because I have limited experience traveling horses abroad. I have taken horses into Europe, but not on a plane. Um, so I know roughly how much they drink, but I've never had water en route. We've always just stopped to offer drinks and also like the soupy drinks with mash. So how much are they drinking when they're traveling along on the road? It varies so Between much. individual, yeah. Um, it, it is very much on a temperature um, basis to whether it's a very hot day or whether it's just an, a normal mild day for, for summer. I've had horses that will not drink at at all. And if they won't drink, there lies a real difficulty. Um, like just, I've taken horses to a one day event um, just in the United Kingdom. And one particular horse, he would lose 20 kilos Oh, right. Um, yeah. That was going to be my next question. You said you weigh the horses and I was saying, do you, what sort of typical weights do they lose if they're not drinking? So that's quite yeah. a lot, isn't it? That is yeah, a lot like, on a performance horse. Absolutely. That's where you cannot visually see this. Um, like Visually, it, it takes about 20% of the horse's body weight in loss before you actually see it. And so um, I've had horses where like going back 23 years, probably long before a lot of your listeners were even <laughs> born. But, but um, like I flew horses to the Olympics in, in Sydney and one horse from departure from the stables here in the United Kingdom to arrival at the venue in Sydney, one horse lost one kilo and the other horse arrived at exactly the same weight. Now that wow. is just the absolute perfect um, situation. Like that's a, a long flight for them, for the horses. But um, that for me uh, was a very, very interesting piece of information. And you cannot know that unless you weigh the horses. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Which I guess is a challenge for our kind of amateur everyday owner that doesn't have access to a weigh bridge. I myself don't have access to a weigh bridge. So uh, mitigating the risk of a horse getting dehydrated is obviously key. So the horse that you know, okay, it's going away. It's not keen on drinking. Can you do anything in advance? Do you do anything in the couple of days before travel to really up those hydration levels as a little buffer before you go? Yes, I think this is where you you really need to take veterinary advice on on this. But just with my experience, um, just if it's, if it's a very hot, day and and hot during travel some electrolytes can also be very helpful but the, yeah. with that there's no point in giving the horse of electrolytes if if the, it's the taste that they don't particularly like and so mm -hmm. they then don't they don't um drink and then they don't eat and it's... and then they're more dehydrated because they've had yeah. electrolytes <laughs> yeah exactly. so i i do endurance riding and uh, electrolyte pastes are one of those marmite topics because um, a, we know they're pretty bad on the digestive system and we really don't recommend them for horses with gastric ulcer concerns. But also there's that risk that if they're not drinking and you give them electrolytes, you're actually dehydrating them more. So um, one of the things that we recommend at Spillers and one of the things I try to do myself is to offer isotonic water at home all the time. So that, yes. like you say, that taste is is available to them and they're used to it. So they don't get to a show or a competition or somewhere traveling that's different and you suddenly present them with water that tastes completely different. And another tip that I actually think is a really valid one is to take some water from home. 
not practical if you're flying across the world and, you know, traveling four days across Europe. But if you're staying in the UK or you're just going over to France, you probably can fill up a few containers for those really, really fussy drinkers of home water. And hopefully they get there and go, oh, yes, this water does taste like normal. And they give that a drink. And I really liked when you said about adding the apple waters, like apple bobbing. So again, there's loads of things we recommend at Spillers that you can add to the water to make it flavoured and make it interesting. Apple juice is a good one. Even squash, blackcurrant squash. Some horses are really into that. Um, A controversial one possibly is actually molasses. Um, I used to work for a short time in the UAE at an endurance yard. And obviously over there, it's exceedingly hot. um, And the horses really need to be well hydrated before we start a race with them. So we used to offer them sort of 50 litres of molassed water the night before a race. Some of them, again, they're all individuals. Some of them would drink loads. Some of them would only drink a small amount, but they certainly liked it more than plain water because it was sugary and sweet. I mean, everything in moderation, not everyone's going to want to offer that, but there are lots of options. However, it's really important to consider the risk of prohibited substances before adding any supplements or flavours to your horse's feed or water. We always recommend riders use beta nops approved feeds and supplements if competing. So speak to a nutritionist for more advice on this. Um, another question I had for you, Andrew, was about making this soupy drink. So do you use their existing feeds? Do you choose a specific mash type feed? What what are you using there to make that soupy foodie drink for them? It's um, It's more a mash that we would use on a regular basis because I would normally um give a give a mash once a day in part of their feeds and and what I would do would be have it in two separate bowls like but again it's it's something that you have to every horse is an individual and so you have to find out what actually works for each individual horse but some horses like to have the the mash in their feed other horses like to have the mash and the feed separate and so it's it's finding out what works with each horse and that's where you need to just spend time with the horses and understand that but I have to say those of you who are involved in the endurance industry you are the world leaders at getting horses to (laughs) to hydrate because it's such an important factor in the endurance riding and, and endurance world and that's where um, I feel in the sport horse industry, we have so much to learn from from those of you in, involved in the endurance because you not only need to have the, the horses being able to drink, but you need to have them with a low heart rate. You need to be able yeah. to have them with energy as well. So they need to be able to eat as well. Um, something that I've also done is tried to get the horses to drink even with a bridle on and a bit in their mouth of which I know you do in the endurance industry as well. Yeah, this is an interesting comment that you've raised actually. So some people, um, most of the time, so for those that don't know anything about endurance, we offer our horses water to drink out on course. So we have a crew team and they will drive to various points around the, the course and then we'll stop our horses midway through the competition and offer them a drink. We're not stopping, you know, for half an hour. We're just, it's just a couple of minutes. If the horse wants to drink, they have a drink. If they don't, we carry on. And we have a slosh, which is essentially pouring some cold water on them to help them again cool down and, and sort of ref- refresh themselves. And um, we obviously don't really have time to take their bits out, but there are some people that will quickly jump off 
take their bit out. And if you've seen Endurance Tack, you'll see it's generally bright colours, but also it's got lots of clips, quick release clips. So um, we can whip their, their bits out really quickly if we need to. So like you said, Andrew, trying to teach a horse to drink with the bit in its mouth is such a good skill set because we don't really want to be wasting time getting off, taking the bit out, putting it on because we do have 45 minute hold periods where we have the vet checks. Um, which dehydration is one of our factors that we get scored on. So our horses are allowed to score a one to two second on a skin pinch test, but three to four would be unacceptable and we would be eliminated from the race. So it's so important our horses stay hydrated. And we're talking 100 miles in a day. So our horses can be going for, you know, 10 hours of competition. So it is key. So yeah, teaching your horse to drink in different scenarios is also, yeah, really, really good. Um, a question for you, Andrew, I don't know a great deal about eventing. When you come off the cross-country course, I'm seeing now a lot more on the TV, a lot more highlighting of cooling the horses down and some fans are being put in place. And there's a lot more about the welfare and management post-cross-country. How do, you, how do you manage coming off a really hard gallop? Yeah, look, this has um, changed immensely from when I first started in the, in the sport to where it is to today. And, and over the years, it's, it's actually changed immensely as well. There's been talk about washing the horse down, um, scraping it off, then washing it down with a sponge again. I'm, I'm not in favor of throwing buckets of water over the horse. I feel that that is, um, I just feel extremely extravagant and um, it just makes an absolute mess. That's my own <laughs> personal, my own personal view. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And then I think um, what has also become available in our sport is where we have fans that you can stand the horse in front of the, the fans. And I always feel it's a very good gauge for me while I'm galloping on the cross country course. I am never hot because I've got sweat and perspiration on my face. The wind on my face keeps me cool. And so I, I'm never hot. But as soon as I stop, then I can become warmer because I don't have the, the wind on my face. And I automatically relate this to the horse as well. The horse would automatically become much warmer when they stop um, on the cross from the uh, run, go through the finish and they slow down and stop. And then it's important <clears throat> for me to make sure you, um, I feel always get the boots off the horse first. So you don't cook the core temperature of the, the tendon and then take the saddle off. But, um, also then I have water flowing over the horses, um, one either side washing the horse down, then one going through scraping, then you go through wash down, scrape, wash down, scrape. But then there's been discussion in the last 12 to 18 months as to not to scrape the horses off. Yeah, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm, yet, I'm yet to take a, a very clear view on this because I'm, I, I, I don't know what is best, but the the best gauge is to take the temperature of the horse and and that way you um and if you have the the vets there with us when we're finishing the cross country it's so important to take the temperature of the horse on a regular basis so and then also the heart rate but the heart rate can be down but the temperature is still very high really interesting what you say about taking the temperature there andrew how how do you take the temperature 
it's it's a, a rectal temperature um, just with a thermometer. So do you take their baseline temperatures before traveling and on an everyday so you know what their temperature is as a normal as well? Yes, obviously, um, with the way the rules and regulations are now, we need to take the temperature from an FEI perspective of the of the horses when wherever we're going to a competition. So I've I've got a very good understanding as to where their their temperatures are. Yeah, great. Okay, so um, another question then is really about electrolytes. Are you feeding electrolytes on an everyday basis? No, it's not. It's not about taking, giving them electrolytes every every day because when it's, it's cool in the winter, obviously the the horses are not doing sufficient work to to need electrolytes, and it's something that I take very much guidance from experts on this as to when to do it and. Um, mm. Like the the older I become and and the more I'm involved in the sport, the more I seek advice from from professional people, so that um, I, I'm getting good good guidance as opposed to just what Andrew thinks. <laughs> so um, the Spillers' sort of recommendation on electrolytes is horses that aren't sweating regularly should get most of their electrolyte needs met from their forage alongside a compound feed or balancer. However, we do also recommend free access to a salt lick. If you do need some guidance, the best thing to do is actually just give us a call. And actually, that goes for anything nutrition related. We have a whole team of nutritionists. So if you're ever stuck, just give us a call. As Andrew said, speak to a professional. We're always there to help um, to get the, the levels correct. So from my perspective, I think we have really covered managing horses' hydration away on an everyday basis. Have you got anything to add, Andrew? Look, I th- we could spend all day talking about it. Yeah. And I think it's, it's um, for me, I just find it fascinating as to what is done in the endurance um, industry because there's, um, I think that you're very advanced in, in that area. I've learned an enormous amount over the years. It's also a feeling and seeking advice from professional people is, is what I always say. Yeah, I have actually just had one more thought before we close. Do you ever soak hay to encourage more water intake? Yes, actually, that's a that's a very good point because um, when I'm when I'm traveling, that's also something else that you can do to for them to g- get water into the horse. But with soaking hay, if you soak it for a long time, you soak all the the goodness out of the hay. So yeah. what you what you win in one area, I think you can lose in the other because you will they will lose nutrition, and and nutrition is obviously very important. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for giving up your time and chatting with us today. It's been so interesting from my perspective too, hearing about all your experience and traveling horses around the world. I'm sure the listeners have really enjoyed that too. So thanks again. Thank you, Bella. Bye-bye. Thank you to Andrew and Bella for all their insight. And I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the Horse and Hound podcast, supported this month by Spillers. We'll be back at the end of August when our interview will be with New Zealand event rider Caroline Powell. She'll look back on her Burley win with Lenamore in 2010. In the meantime, do rate, review and share the podcast in your podcast app to help us grow the Horse and Hound podcast family. Talk to you soon. The Horse and Ham podcast is a Media Cage production.